All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to this um, partnered webinar. Uh, PEDRA is proud to be partnering with the National Foundation for Ectodermal Dysplasias on this talk, Dermatological Manifestations of Ectodermal Dysplasias and Patient Case Presentation. Next slide. Just a brief overview of our agenda. We have a lot to get through this evening, um, and uh, this is what you can look forward to. Next, uh, with that, I am going to turn it over to Becky from uh, National Foundation for Ectoderma Dysplasias to introduce our speakers. Thank you so much, Jen. Um, this is the list of speakers that we have today. And um, since uh, we have a very full agenda, we're gonna get started right away. So I'm honored to introduce Dr. Elaine Siegfried. She's a professor of pediatrics and dermatology at St. Louis University School of Medicine. So go ahead, Elaine, thank you. And thanks everybody for attending and for your interest in the ectodermal dysplasias. I just want to give you a little background. I've been involved on the scientific advisory board for the National Foundation of Ectodermal Dysplasias, gosh, for at least 25 years, huh, Mary? The 30th anniversary was just celebrated. So it's a wonderful organization and the amount of um, effort and really reward uh, of investment from the NFED into, you know, better treatments and enhanced understanding of this group of diseases has just grown by leaps and bounds, and it couldn't have been done without the NFED. So for any of you who are interested in the NFED, you know, please, you know, consult the website. I I'm sure Mary would be happy to talk to you, and, you know, we're always looking for people who are interested in helping us with the mission. So today I'm just going to give you a little overview that is really based on, again, these 25 years of experience of, you know, meeting, having the privilege, really, of meeting with so many families with ectodermal dysplasias, particularly at the annual family conference. And then we had a, 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 some wonderful uh, AEC, sponsored AEC conferences. It allowed me to meet and interact with so many more people with this group of conditions than I ever would have in the office. So I'm just very privileged to have had that experience and I can speak to you a little bit about that today. It doesn't look like I can advance the slide, so I, I guess I'll just say next unless I'm missing how to do it. Uh, so it just as a little simple overview. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about diagnostic issues related to ectodermal dysplasias and then talk a little bit about treatment. Next slide. Diagnosis first. So the most common ectodermal dysplasia, as I'm sure most people who are attending the conference today know, is the hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia. So the majority of those have X-linked. Um, it occurs in about a frequency about one in 100,000 males, but there's also autosomal dominant and autosomal recessive forms. The X-linked form works through the receptor and the, um, the, uh, the dominant and the recessive forms uh, sorry, the, the X-linked form works through the protein and the dominant re, uh, and recessive form work through the receptor. Uh, you're all aware that the presentation, it typically in early infancy begins with this impaired ability to sweat. Uh, hypo, hypohidrosis uh, that then in turn causes hyperthermia. So affected babies, in addition to um, having a really somewhat characteristic facial features, which I'll show you some pictures of, they, they typically have a history of presenting with recurrent fevers of unknown origin. 
you know, in infancy and then beyond, they are plagued by a variety of related problems like thick nasal secretions and thick cerumen, um, xerostomia and xerophthalmia. Uh, and then, you know, the, the aesthetic features of the condition. Um, another real characteristic feature is hypodontia and then these very characteristic conical teeth. Um, and then dermatologic signs, there are many, but uh, in the biggest challenge comes in infancy. So from a dermatologist's perspective, you know, what do we see? Uh, often kids will present with a collodion phenotype, although not always. They have very dry skin uh, as they get older, and especially in adolescence and beyond. They have this really characteristic sebaceous hyperplasia. We know from work done by the NFED that atopic dermatitis is more common in this population. Then there's also that characteristic periorbital and infraorbital darkening and wrinkling. I'll show you some pictures of that. That's an aesthetic concern for some people. Fine, sparse scalp hair is another aesthetic concern. And interestingly, although um, males have early onset androgenic alopecia, conversely, they just have this really abundant male beard for reasons we don't really understand very well. Nails can be thin, and the dramatic glyphics are often attenuated. Next slide. These are just some illustrations of some pretty characteristic features. You can see, I don't know if you can see um, the, my pointer, but I'll show it to you here. These, you know, very characteristic conical teeth. And many children who don't present with um, recurrent fevers of unknown origin will get their diagnosis, you know, from their dental uh, health care professional uh, because of their conical teeth. This is a picture of some you know, very marked sebaceous hyperplasia. Lips tend to be very full. You can see the periorbital darkening. Uh, again, an adult who's got uh, both the conical teeth, but markedly, you know, sparse hair. And again, starts early on in adolescence, but, you know, uh, by contrast, really thick uh, beards. Don't understand why that is. It just is. Next uh, slide. Um, this is a, a really old picture from Jenna Cyber. Jenna's also been participating longer than me in the National Foundation for Ectodermal Dysplasia Scientific Advisory Board. And just as a historical mention, Nan Esterly was the very first dermatologist to participate. But this is a picture from uh, Jenna's collection, just looking at, uh, you know, noticing the attenuated dermatoglyphics in this uh, affected patient versus a, a normal control. Little kids with ectodermal teeth, they're cute. <laughs> they tend to have, again, fair skin, very fine, sparse hair. And you can see this guy's little bitty conical tooth. And some, but sometimes it's just, and, and you can also begin to see a little bit of that periorbital darkening. So the facial features, while they're subtle, you know, are, are pretty characteristic of hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia in this affected boy. But um, sometimes it can just be subtle and, and can be easily overlooked. Next slide. So this is the real challenge. So this is a, a, a newborn, again, with the periorbital darkening, um, uh, you know, very sparse hair, you know, scaly skin. And, and this is a, you know, sort of typical presentation of a newborn with hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia. Next slide. It, and, you know, that it used to be much more of a challenge to make this diagnosis, but genetic testing is now widely available commercially and is much more affordable than it used to be. Uh, my favorite place is probably in Vitae, but there are other places um, that you can get genetic testing, and the NFED has a repository for that kind of information. Um, you know, the genetic testing results can be delayed, although they're getting faster and faster all the time. And... Um, 
previously, it, you know, prenatal testing uh, was only available for families who had an identifiable mutation, but now you really can get genetic testing pretty easily. So, you know, establishing the diagnosis is not nearly as hard as it used to be. Next slide. But I did want to give you just a historic uh, overview of um, some of the um, projects that have been funded by the NFED. And at, way back at our 2001 NFED Family Conference, seems like yesterday to me, but it was already more than 20 years ago, we looked for other um, methods of, of making a diagnosis beyond genetic testing because that was so unaffordable and, and difficult uh, for finding access. So we, we, at the Family Conference, which was in St. Louis that year, and uh, you know, tragically, uh, in the middle of St. Louis, you know, in the, in the middle of the summertime in St. Louis where the weather was, uh, you know, 90 degrees, the air conditioning at our hotel went out. I've never seen a hotel swimming pool so full of all those kids with HED. But we had many, many volunteers, both uh, affected individuals and carrier relatives as well as unaffected relatives. And uh, next slide. So what we did was we tried to characterize the condition based on the results of some skin biopsies. And we we did both the scalp and the palm just to look to see if we could quantify the number of both hair follicles and, um, and eccrine glands. And what we found was that uh, even though the palm kind of occurred to me that it might be a little bit better place to to test, it was really the scalp that was the much more sensitive place. Uh, sweat glands are much more dense on the palm, and, and people with HED can have sweat glands uh, both on the palm and the scalp. It's just that you can see the difference a lot better on the scalp. So that was a, a cute little study that we did before we had uh, access to such great genetic testing. Next slide. There's many other diagnostic challenges in, uh, in the ectodermal dysplasia category, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Ectodermal dysplasia with immune deficiency is uh, uh, due to uh, a, a mutation in NEMO that really is very similar, really a dead ringer for um, hypohydratic ectodermal dysplasia due to ectodysplasian defect. And this condition is actually allelic to incontinentia pigmentis, so affected boys who survive yeah, because a lot of boys don't survive with this mutation, but the boys that do survive often will have sisters who have um, incontinentia pigmenti. And their clinical features, as I mentioned, are very similar to this X-linked HED, except that they also have uh, recurrent severe life-threatening bacterial infections with um, strep pneumonia, Klebsiella, and especially atypical mycobacterium that can progress to chronic lung disease. They often will have failure to thrive with chronic diarrhea. So this is a, a, this is a tragic condition. I actually had one patient that, um, uh, that we lost due to this condition, but it's very rare. Next slide. This is actually, this is that little boy. Uh, he's been gone for quite a while now. Um, the other thing that's important to, to be aware of for kids who have this condition is that they probably have impaired barrier function, and so they can really, uh, they're at really risk for excessive percutaneous absorption and percutaneous toxicity to products that you use on their skin. Yeah, he got older, and but he, he, he died of overwhelming infection, ultimately. 
Moving on to hydrotic ectodermal dysplasia, Clouston syndrome. Sorry, they don't skip over that one, which is which is a type of ectodermal dysplasia, but not really related to hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia. And these are some of the characteristic features: palmoplantar plantar keratoderma, sparse hair, again, just like we see in HED, uh, and then also very characteristic nail findings that I think can really make that diagnosis. Nails are hyper um, curved, and and you can see this kind of very bizarre hyperkeratosis at the tip tips of the fingernails. Next slide. Kids syndrome is another one that is, uh, you know, it, it, the, the phenotypic presentation is very diagnostic and although this condition is very rare, um, it's been classically described and I've seen this uh, just anecdotally in the same way. When children are born, the description is that they're covered with thick vernix. And so in this particular case, the kid that you see here um, pictured on the left is a child who the neonatologist called me up and he just said, I've never seen anything like this before. Before. I'm like, well, tell me what you're seeing. This was in the days before we could put pictures into the chart. He said they're just covered with thick vernix. And again, that's been, uh, that's been uh, described in the literature. They also have very characteristic, I think it's on the next slide, um, if you flip there. Nope. Go back to the last slide. They have very characteristic, almost stippled pomoplantar keratoderma as well uh, that, that, that you can make a diagnosis. And then, of course, you know, it's indicated to do a you know, brainstem auditory re evoke response or you know, begin with doing hearing screening. And often, you know, these children also suffer from severe immune deficiency, a subset of them can, and, and uh, have a, maybe a shortened life expectancy. Uh, next slide. Then we're going to move on to beyond the hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasias and the rarer variants of ectodermal dysplasia onto the P63 group. And historically, these always were referred to as different conditions based on some of the distinguishing features. So AEC or Haywell syndrome featured ankylobulepharon. EEC syndrome um, featured ectrodactyly, and Rapp-Hodgkin syndrome featured this kind of characteristic mid-face hypoplasia. But we know that there are some families that children are born to the same families that have a Rapp-Hodgkin phenotype and an AEC phenotype. So, you know, th these are all um, mutations in P63, and there's some genotype-phenotype correlation with the location of the mutation, but there is also quite a bit of overlap with these conditions. This is just the case that I, that I mentioned that was reported where a mom who had a Rapkajkin phenotype um, had a child who uh, had more uh, of an EEC phenotype. The dermatologic features of this condition are also really distinctive. And the biggest and most problematic is that they have very severe congenital erythroderma and often accompanied by severe, severe erosions in 90% of patients. The most common um, place for those erosions is the scalp, but they can, they can cover, you know, a, a, a large percentage of body surface area. Um, often there's a collodion-like phenotype, um, chronic ichthyosiform scaling, and again, the kind of characteristic sparse hair that we see in other forms of ectodermal dysplasias, but, you know, it's brittle and can feature pelitority. Um, and the nail dystrophy that occurs is described as, you know, small and thick, hyperconvex nails. Heat intolerance is not as common as it is for the HEDs, but but it, it occurs in, in about 50% of patients. And again, the scalp erosions that are prominent in the newborn period um, are, are can be chronic, but typically do tend to improve over time.
Um, the NFED um, funded a wonderful conference in 2006 that focused specifically on AEC and to try to get some sort of group conse consensus about the diagnosis and, you know, how to really best take care of these patients. And so, you know, it was concluded at that time that recognition of the distinctive um, congenital features, you know, is really important to minimize unnecessary invasive diagnostic testing. And the, the features are just uh, listed here as we've um, uh, mentioned, but particularly the, um, the, the erosions, the skin erosions are very problematic, but also very characteristic of the condition. How do you treat it? Well, in the 2006 uh, consensus meeting, we came up with some very conservative approaches because nothing had been at all um, described before that. So if you flip to the next slide, you can see what the, um, oh, sorry, it's just a summary and then we'll get to the recommendations, but um, you know what? Sorry, I'm wrong. I'm going to get to the AEC recommendations only at the end of the study. We're just going to talk a little bit about recommendations just for um, ectodermal dysplasias in general. And these are things that, you know, all dermatologists are really aware of, but uh, just to briefly go over this, and these are some of the things I think it's important to provide anticipatory guidance about that. You know, daily bathing, gentle cleansing, very similar to skin care that you would do for children with other kinds of inflammatory skin diseases. Avoid complex topical products. We like plain petroleum jelly. Coconut oil is a good second. Um, next slide specifically for ectodermal dysplasia, you know, children may prefer less occlusive creams or lotions, especially in summer. Uh, and they're not, they're, their skin is not quite as sensitive as those who have just pure atopic dermatitis, unless, of course, it's a child with HED who does have atopic dermatitis, you know, in addition to their uh, ectodermal dysplasia. I always say that swimming is an ideal activity for children with ED, with, with any kind of ED who has hypohidrosis, you know, because the cool water really reduces the body heat. Having said that, there's lots and lots of kids who come to the, um, the family conference in the summer that do all kinds of things from playing soccer to running marathons, and they, they tend to really tolerate that. We'll talk a little bit about controlling overheating here in a minute. But, you know, moisturizer, waterproof sunscreen reapplied when the skin is still wet. For eczema, you know, everybody knows about eczema. There's different uh, recommendations that I have here, really, that, that are directed towards patients more than healthcare providers, but these are the, some of the things that we try. I'm a little, you know, the, the uh, FDA just came out with a statement about N-acetylcysteine um, because you know, it's been a little bit on short supply, but also, um, you know, we don't really know about the efficacy of it very well. So, you know, it's, you want to use that in caution, with caution, especially in very um, young children. Uh, next slide. Seborrheic dermatitis, also a problem for lots of people with HED, um, more common in infants presenting as cradle cap. You know, I personally think that this condition is significantly related to malassezia colonization and overgrowth. So I often will recommend, you know, medicated anti-dandruff shampoo, or sometimes if it's more severe than that, a 30-minute pre-shampoo type scalp treatment with one of the products that's listed here. Um, and, then, um, and then, you know, there's other topical prescription products that can be used in more severe cases. I always recommend for our patients, you know, to really be aware of the potential for product sensitivity. 
I'm not a contact dermatitis expert by any means, but I'm an armchair contact dermatitis interested dermatologist. I think it's really an under-recognized condition that can compl complicate many of the things we see, including the ectodermal dysplasias. I often will recommend, recommend a, a DYI patch testing for people, especially before they're going to try things like sunscreens. You know, just apply that product to a quarter-sized area inside of the upper inner arm once a day for about five days, and then continue to monitor or the site for two weeks. I recommend this a lot. I have to tell you that not a lot of patients actually follow through on it, but it is a good idea if they, if they would do so. Sun protection, especially for young infants, is really is much more dependent on shade and sun protective protective clothing. My favorite sunscreen for babies is just plain zinc oxide ointment, not advertised for this purpose, but really the safest and and truly most effective physical blocker that there is. You can tell when it wears off because you can't see it anymore, so that kind of prompts uh, reapplication. For older children and adults, I just, you know, recommend reading the labels, really reading the labels for getting the broadest spectrum of protection and then knowing about, you know, the, the substantivity of the vehicle. Next slide. Talk a little bit about hair growth. I, I have found that there's not that many people with HED, maybe younger kids and, and early adolescents, you know, are really more concerned about sparse hair and sparse hair types. The adult males, by the time they get to be the age of this guy, you know, they do have thinning hair, especially on top, but again, as I mentioned, a very thick beard. Um, and uh, eyebrows and eyelashes can be fine and sparse as well. Um, facial groin and underarm hair usually develop normally at puberty. Uh, and, uh, you know, Know, there is concern about some androgenic alopecia. Little tips for helping um, children who have sp fine sparse hair. I think uh, short styling is probably minimizes the appearance of fine short hair. Uh, gentle cleansing products, volumizing conditioners are certainly not problematic or risky for these kids. I think, you know, we've recommended minoxidil for, for some people who really want to try it. I, I don't have data about how effective it is. Uh, same thing for Latisse, you know, for eyebrows and eyelashes. But what I often counsel people that have concerns about hair growth in this condition is to be aware of all the unsubstantiated claims that are associated with products that are, you know, talk about um, supporting hair growth. Same thing for androgenic, androgen, androgenic alopecia. You know, I listed some things here that people are using. I certainly don't have any experience in treating androgenic alopecia in adult men with, um, with, uh, androgen, with, uh, hypohydratic ectodermal dysplasia, but, you know, just to be aware that the quality of the evidence for pretty much all these um, uh, products, except for minoxidil, which is pretty robust data, but it just doesn't work all that well. And again, I try to caution people about um, being wary of unsub unsubstantiated claims. A little bit about nails. Well, as I mentioned, you know, the nail abnormalities which eat with each one of the HEDs is most useful for trying to make a diagnosis because they all have kind of different but relatively characteristic nail findings. Um, people with HED have thin nails. People with Clusson syndrome have thick nails. Uh, there's a variety of nail dystrophies that happen in the P63s, and usually they're, they're brittle. And anytime you have brittle nails, you know, you have an increased risk of secondary infection. 
for thin fragile nails there's things that you can recommend and here's some of the things that are listed um, nail lacquers can just help a little bit the quality for the thin nails um, there's orthosilicilic acid that's biosil capsules I don't have any experience with the efficacy of those but there's literature supporting um, supporting the use Biotin supplements, not much literature supporting the use, but it's something that's safe that people can try. And then some people liked the thought of using artificial nails. I, I don't think that those are contraindicated, but I always do caution people about the, um, the risks of irritation or contact allergy. For the thick dystrophic nails, it's really important to have you know good fitting footwear. Um, one of the things that people can try is just sequential filing. You can get these you know almost sandpaper grid, you know uh, finer and finer sandpaper grid that people can use to try to thin out their nails. Forty percent urea, especially under occlusion, is something that people can try, but it's so labor intensive that I, I certainly don't have many kids that can keep that up. And then you always got to be aware of the possibility of secondary fungal infection. Um, and I I, I I like to look, my, my favorite clue, especially for um, onychomycosis in the feet, is to look for web space scale between the fourth and the fifth digit. I think that's kind of a sensitive sign for, um, for tinea pettis, and I don't think you can get onychomycosis unless you got tinea pettis. Um, other things that are uh, HED specific, the, hyper, the periorbital hyperpigmentation that I mentioned, the sebaceous hyperplasia, you know, collodion phenotype, and for the P63s, the terrible problem of skin fragility, and then you know, the ongoing ichthyosiform scaling and palmoplantar keratoderma. And we didn't talk very much about Gold syndrome, but Gold syndrome is a, is a condition that's rare, but really has some very difficult to treat dermatologic uh, problems, uh, especially the papillomas. Next slide. These are all therapeutic challenges. So here's even a young girl. I, I know I showed you pictures of a baby and some older, uh, some adults who have this hyperpigmentation. Mm -hmm. It's really strictly an aesthetic concern, but you know we don't really know what causes it exactly. But you know the things that you can recommend are you know the rub proof, waterproof, camouflage makeups. Um, there are in option off. Uh, there are in-office options that are offered by some cosmetic dermatologists and plastic surgeons that have been mentioned, like chemical peels and microneedling. But again, just like with hair growth products, I, I really try to counsel people and provide anticipatory guidance about unsubstantiated claims. Sebaceous hyperplasia is a really odd one, you know, especially given that these people have, you know, a dearth of eccrine glands, but their sebaceous glands seem to be, you know, hypertrophied. Um, it, it's again an aesthetic concern, and, and people who have um, hypodrachic ectodermal dysplasia, they have sebaceous hyperplasia much more than they have problems with acne. There are things that you can try, nothing that's you know well proven to make this better. I always would start with a topical retinoid. You know, I think that uh, isotretinoin is another possibility, although I've never used that in anyone with this condition. And then there are in-office procedures that have been mentioned as well, like cryotherapy, electrocautery, and you know application of uh, a desiccant like TCA. 
Colonial Baby is another issue. I, I haven't seen a, well, I guess I saw a couple of them last year. <laughs> and of course, that's a phenotype, and there's many uh, genetic conditions that can result in this um, end-stage phenotype. But in the next slide, it just has you know, recommendations that are uh, mm -hmm. published uh, with how to manage a collodion baby. It's gotten so much better since we now have isolates where you can dial the humidity in a way without guessing, but you want to start out with a high humidity isolate and then just very gradually um, dial it down and first do no harm. So typically we just start with you know bland emollients like plain old petroleum jelly as you're, as you're helping a child, uh, a baby to adapt to a xeric environment from an aqueous environment. Next slide. We'll talk a little bit about, this was a slide I thought was coming up earlier, but the skin erosions in AEC syndrome and the P63s are a major cause of morbidity in infancy, and we don't have well-established guidelines for how to treat this. Um, it primarily, as I mentioned, affects the scalp, but it can be total body, and that's where it's the most life-threatening. And it, it, as, as the condition progresses in postnatal life, it, it has associated crusting and granulation tissue and, and really severe pain that's associated with that. Next slide. At our, at our 2006 conference, you know, we focused on this and to try to come up with anything that we could do to, as a general um, standard recommendation. But you know, the problem is chronic and you know, secondary infection is a big risk and, and it, it definitely heals with scarring, including scarring alopecia. The keratodermis are probably somewhat related to just the erosions, although presenting differently in the palmo plantar skin. You can also get the same kind of features in the ear canal. And again, as I mentioned, can be, they can be quite extensive and painful. So these are the recommendations that were proposed in that 2006 conference. You know, just again, you know, do no harm. Avoid irritants. Avoid excessive aggressive debridement that you know some some are wont to do. Avoid uh, you know an attempts at full thickness skin grafting. It just doesn't work very well. So you know the same kind of gentle skincare techniques that we do for collodion babies. You know, gentle cleansing, bland emollients. You can try using uh, antimicrobials. So uh, dilute sodium hypochlorite soaks. You can get that from Dakin's in the hospital or Vosh is another uh, product that's more recently available. And then there's a lot of innovative wound care that people have tried. So these are uh, Mepilex transfer is, is one product that some people have found uh, useful. And then, you know, within patient care, you just always have to be aware of the risk of secondary infection from bacteria, yeast, and even viral infection. So a lot of these kids require extended, extended home nursing. But one of the, one of the real lessons that uh, we've learned from some kids who have, um, have, uh, come to the attention of the NFED is that, you know, you don't want to let the wounds get too wet or too goopy. But I know Shannon's going to have a lot to say about that from her own personal experience. Um, before we go on to GOLTS, I, I, I did want to just very briefly mention that the NFED has been in contact with a group in France that are doing some incredibly exciting work on targeted approaches to helping heal skin that's affected by these P63 uh, defects. So, you know, stay tuned. It's, it's an exciting time for people who have this group of conditions. 
Just want to mention a little bit about Gold's papillomas. This is a real therapeutic unmet need. Uh, it's characterized by squamous proliferation and stromal proliferation. Um, it may, in some cases, be HPV-associated. It is mostly affects mucosal sites around the mouth and the eyelids and perigenital, and malignant transformation has been reported. We don't really have great treatment, as I mentioned, for GOLTS. Very difficult. Uh, In-office procedures have been uh, suggested, cryotherapy, podophyllin, excision, these destructive kind of techniques. Oral cimetidine has been suggested, interferon alpha injections. Uh, you know, certainly um, uh, prophylaxis with um, the non-ovalent HPV vaccine is something that you should recommend to these patients. I don't know how effective it is with their papillomas, but be aware that even with um, surgical and destructive techniques that reoccurrence is common. So that's all I had to say in that little brief overview, and I'm really looking forward to hearing, uh, hearing our next guest. Thank you so much, Elaine. We're going to hold off on questions until the end of the presentation. Um, so I just wanted to introduce a wonderful NFED family, uh, Shannon Brown and her daughter, Erin. Um, and they will tell you a little bit about their um, journey and diagnosis uh, with AEC, which is a form of ectodermal dysplasia. So Erin and Shannon, take it away. Hello, um, I'm, I'm Shannon, this is Erin. Um, so in 2011, I found out I was pregnant with my first child. Uh, the pregnancy seemed normal until around the third trimester when I was found to have low amniotic fluid causing interuterine growth restriction. Uh, due to this, Erin was born breech via a C-section. It wasn't known until her delivery that she wasn't a typical newborn. Uh, she had skin erosions covering approximately 70% of her body and an acleoblepharon of her left eyelid. At the time, they suspected uh, epidermolysis bullosa, and Erin was transferred to Atlanta and admitted to their NICU, where she remained for around six weeks. Epidermolysis bullosa was eventually ruled out and they proceeded with genetic testing to look for a P63 gene mutation. Looking back, it was at this point that I believe the NFED should have been first contacted. As it was, both our family and the NFED were unaware of Aaron's suspected condition. During Aaron's remaining time in the Georgia NICU, her condition rapidly deteriorated. She was losing fluids through her skin, which affected her platelets and hemocrit which resulted in five blood transfusions. Her erosions, rather than healing, were worsening and covering more of what little completely formed skin she had at birth. The bedding that was used created friction, furthering breaking down her skin. The pulse ox was left in place constantly and created a significant breakdown of the skin on the soles of her feet and contributed to her delay in walking even more than a year later. Simple things such as gently measuring her head caused bleeding. At this point, our family decided that Erin needed to be transferred to a different care facility. The hospital she was at seemed only to be offering her palliative care, such as morphine and high oxygen chambers. They avoided changing her diaper even when it needed changing because it was so painful to her. They avoided bandages until an area was openly bleeding. This plan of care made us uncomfortable and we felt there should be a more proactive treatment and family education. We contacted University of Michigan, which was a hospital near where my mom lived and we, requ we requested a transfer of care. Immediately, in fact, as Erin was en route to University of Michigan via the airlift helicopter, 
we found out the hospital had already contacted the NFED in anticipation of caring for Aaron. And they had received information on treating and caring for Aaron's skin condition, which had now been diagnosed via the genetic testing as AEC. Aaron's circumstances were vastly improved with the transfer of care, the diagnosis, and the contribution of the NFED. We were greeted at the hospital by the dermatology team and they continued to evaluate Aaron on an at least daily basis. We found that having dermatology take the lead resulted in a much faster and more comfortable healing process. Our previous experience had consisted of visits from wound care and two uh, visits from dermatology over a six week period while she was in Atlanta. Uh, before Aaron was discharged, they were taught and trained, we were taught and trained on how to care for Aaron's skin. These are some of the things that we learned, some or all of which you may already know, and some that um, Dr. Siegfried just went over. Um, dudes, dudes, we did um, daily sponge bath with diluted bleach and disposable gauze performed by gently placing the gauze that had been soaked in dilute bleach over her body. Uh, her entire body and avoiding any wiping, rubbing, or scrubbing. Uh, dressing changes consisted of liberally coating zero form with either Vaseline or Aquaphor and then wrapping the affected area. Uh, clothing worn over zero form benefited from having Vaseline rubbed into them prior uh, so as not to let the zero form dry out. If the zero form dried out too much uh, when you went to do the dressing change, it would um, tear off more of the skin barrier. Um, diapers, for diapering, we cut about a seven inch length of zero form coated with additional Vaseline and laid it on the groin and lower back in the diaper prior to diapering. We continued that for, a, well, as long as she was in diapers, so around three years. Um, duoderm, always to be used. Uh, tegaderm and similar adhesives caused erosions and irritation. Uh, granulation tissue responded gradually to steroid creams. So what we found did not work uh, was Castile soap, um, exposed IVs. Um, if, if you wrapped the IV specifically while, while the child is in the NICU, um, so the child does not cut themselves on the IV, causing more uh, skin breakdown, um, dry gauze on bare skin, uh, sween or dimethicone-based emollients uh, was, uh, that was, that was, that didn't work. Uh, Tegaderm, uh, chlorhexidine wipes uh, for uh, like surgical placements. She had a Broviac placed um, and they were wiping it, wiping that area down with chlorhexidine that quickly broke down the skin on her chest. Um, and pulse ox worn uh, continuously. We found the best, uh, the best way to do that was to take the vitals, take the pulse ox off. When the vitals needed to be checked, take the pulse ox or put the pulse ox back on. Um, dressing changes, bleach baths, really all of the above and often, excuse me, really all of the above and often more were our daily routine for about nine months. In summary, we experienced subpar patient care and education on, at the onset, which resulted in feelings of despair and isolation that we were still healing from. Everything changed when Aaron was transferred to a hospital focusing on learning, teaching, and patient care and so willing to include the NFED. The collaboration of the NFED and Michigan Medicine or University of Michigan saved Aaron's life. The NFED has been priceless 
we are not alone in seeing similar people not only surviving, but thriving. We've created relationships and learned from one another's mistakes and victories. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and listen to someone like me who doesn't know all the medical terminology, although now I know a lot more than I'd like to. Uh, your dedication to learning and working with families is exactly what saved my daughter's life. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shannon. And um, thank you, Aaron, uh, for participating as well. Uh, Shannon and Aaron are going to stay till the end of the webinar and answer any questions that you may have. Um, so next we have uh, Mary Fate, who is the uh, fearless leader and executive director of the National Foundation for Ectodermal Dysplasias. Take it away, Mary. Well, good evening, everybody. And first of all, thank you so much for joining us and for your interest in the ectodermal dysplasias. And also thank everybody who's joining, listening to the recording for your interest and learning about the ectodermal dysplasias. You know, before I get started, I just have to say one thing. I've known Aaron and Shannon Brown since Aaron was born. You will never meet a more fierce mother advocate than Shannon Brown. And I would dare to say you'll never find a tough little girl, a fierce warrior and fighter as Aaron. They are amazing and they, their strength and courage really humbles me. So I'm really happy to be with you and I'm excited to tell you just a little bit about the National Foundation for Ectodermal Dysplasias and our role in as a patient advocacy group. So our mission is to empower and connect people touched by ectodermal dysplasias through education, support, and research. And you know, we proudly serve more than 9,000 families in 80 plus countries. So although we're housed in the United States, we have, country, uh, we have families in 80 plus countries. You know, ectodermal dysplasias are rare, occurring in three to seven of every 10,000 births. So that means up to 4 million are living with some form of ectodermal dysplasias worldwide, up to 225,000 in the United States alone. And, you know, the problem uh, with ectodermal dysplasias, and Dr. Siegfried spoke a little bit about this, it's a really challenging to diagnose many of the ectodermal dysplasias. So families go years uh, without a diagnosis, which is really problematic. So I won't go over this in detail because Dr. Sidfrey did a wonderful job talking about the hair, which can be missing and sparse and abnormal in texture, the teeth. She showed you the conical teeth. Uh, teeth might be missing. Some babies are born, um, children never develop any teeth, which can really be a treatment um, challenge for our families. Sweat glands don't work properly. And so children can overheat and so they have to learn to manage that. Nails, Dr. Siegfried talked about, they can be thin, um, thick, abnormally shaped or ridged, or they can be missing. And then the skin, uh, Dr. Siegfried went into great detail. So I won't hit on that. So we really pride ourselves in providing accurate information. And as Dr. Siegfried said, we celebrated our 40th anniversary this year. So we take a lot of pride in uh, all the resources and the knowledge that we've developed over 40 years. We have family conferences every year, national conferences where our families gather together um, to learn from each other and to learn from our experts. We have a kids camp in which kids have an amazing time. It's 
just so cool to watch these kids come to conference and they don't want to go to kids camp. And then by the time conference is over, we can't drag them out of kids camp. So it's a wonderful time for them to be with their peers and other kids that look like them and have similar challenges. We have webinars uh, like we're having tonight. And we also sponsor webinars for our families, educational web webinars. We have a very robust website which uh, a plethora of uh, information is on our website. So I would encourage you to check out our website, nfed.org. We have professional education, which can be seminars, workshops, and we do dermatology grand rounds uh, where we bring our families to teach professionals on their challenges. And it's really, truly an amazing event. Support, we provide support for our families. Uh, we connect families with other families so they can learn from each other. We are one organization that we personally answer the phone. So you're not going to call the NFED and you're not going to hear press one to get this or two to get this. You're going to have somebody answer the phone and be connected directly to a support person. Uh, we have a first connect program for our new families. We have family liaisons in, in, in various states to support locally. And again, I talked about family conferences, and I think we have like 16 Facebook groups. So we provide uh, a lot of support through Facebook. Uh, we have treat support for treatment. We have the Dental Treatment Centers Program, where we collaborate and partner with uh, dental schools and private practices to provide quality, cost-effective care for our families. We have a treatment assistance program and an insurance assistance program. Uh, in our uh, uh, treatment assistance program, we can help provide dentures for children. We strongly believe that children should be wearing dentures by the time they go to kindergarten. You know, some as young as three years old, uh, these children have been able to wear dentures. And we feel it's important for nutrition, for facial symmetry, for uh, you know chewing and, and speech. So we strongly encourage our families to uh, to advocate for dentures for their children. Um, we provide cooling vests and we a lot of education on how uh, families, parents can keep their children cool so they, they don't overheat. Uh, many children uh, don't need cooling vests. Uh, some do, but we can help families with that. Um, a lot of families just carry a lot of squirt bottles around and wet t-shirts for sports. Uh, we also provide wigs. We help provide wigs for uh, uh, individuals with sparse hair. So uh, we can help with that. And Becky's gonna go into a lot of detail about the Ensuring Last of Smiles Act, but uh, it's our role as a patient advocacy organization, organization to not only support our families, but also to advocate in their behalf. So I'm really proud of our efforts that we, we've done in, in regards to ELSA and I look forward to Becky telling you about our efforts. So we have made a significant research impact. Dr. Siegfried talked a bit about it. We have invested more than $3.6 million in research. I think that's pretty incredible for a small organization such as the NFED. Uh, we've sponsored 118 different research studies and trials. We've sponsored 10 research conference and our families uh, line up to participate in research whenever there's an opportunity available. So uh, I 
strongly encourage you to refer your patients to us. We have a lot of resources, edu both educational and some financial assistance. Uh, follow us on uh, social media. Our website is nfvd.org. And I thank you very much for your time and attention. And um, I will um, end with that. But please, please, please refer your patients to the NFED. Thank you. And I'll pass it on to Becky. Thank you so much, Mary. Um, mine is the last and final presentation, and then we will open it up for Q&A. Uh, I'll just quickly introduce myself. I'm Becky Abbott, and I'm the Director of Research and Treatment Advocacy, as well as the co-chair of the NFED Family Driven Advocacy Committee. Um, not only do I work for the NFED, but my oldest of three sons, um, Aiden, is also affected by XLHED, or X-linked hypohydritic ectodermal dysplasias. And I'm here to talk a little bit about the Ensuring Lasting Smiles Act. So the Ensuring Lasting Smiles Act, which is also known as ELSA or HR 1916 in the U.S. House of Representatives or S-754 in the U.S. Senate, is federal legislation that was reintroduced um, last year, March 16th, with strong bipartisan support. Uh, as of right now, we have 317 co-sponsors in the House and 42 U.S. Senate co-sponsors. Uh, the bill also passed in the US, U.S. House of Representatives on April 4th of this year with a 301 310 to 110 vote, um, which is absolutely amazing considering it is a health care bill. Um, so ELSA is broadly written based on the 50 state statutes that require um, insurers to offer coverages for the medically necessary repair of congenital anomalies. Um, it's important to the ectodermal dysplasias community um, because as you can imagine, many of the treatments, including um, dentures or oral treatments are not being covered even though they're medically necessary. So that's why um, our advocates are advocating for this legislation. The Ensuring Lasting Smiles Act will ensure that private group and individual health plans do not deny or delay medically necessary treatments of congenital anomalies. And it puts um, the determination of medical necessity in the treating physician's hands rather um, than in the insurance company's hands. So these are our fearless bill leads, Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa in the Senate, and then Representative Anna Eshoo from California and Representative Drew Ferguson from Georgia, who is a dentist. So what will ELSA do? Um, about 4% of children are born with a congenital anomaly. So ELSA will ensure that private group and in individual health plans do not deny or delay medically necessary treatments of congenital anomalies. And uh, just a few examples of congenital anomalies are oral defects, which I was just talking about, cleft lip, cleft palate, hypodontia, and enamel hypoplasia, skeletal defects, vision defects, hearing defects. Um, but the bottom line is that any medically diagnosed congenital anomaly that requires medically necessary treatments would benefit from the passage of the Ensuring Lasting Smiles Act. And that's why um, even though the NFED is leading this effort, um, we are working alongside 70 plus organizations that are supporting and advocating for ELSA. So your story is powerful. We believe that providers and researchers and patient stories go hand in hand. And when we raise our voices together, we're more powerful. Uh, legislators want to hear stories from the patient's and provider's perspective, and you're the best person to share your story or your patient's story. We have the opportunity to help change the lives of many individuals um, like our families who are living with congenital anomalies, and we need advocates uh, representing many uh, congenital anomalies to advocate. Personal stories or patient stories can help a legislator decide to co-sponsor or support th this legislation. Um, time and time again, one family has been the deciding factor as to whether um, a certain senator or representative would sign on to support this legislation. 
Every single legislator is important at this point, and we are hoping to try to get this across the finish line um, through the Senate and passed before the end of the year. Uh, if legislators don't hear from you, they won't know how important this legislation is to your patient or your patient community. Anyone can advocate. It doesn't matter if you've done it before. Um, so we're hoping that um, some of you will step up and make a difference in your state. So um, we're to the question and answer part. Um, I just wanted to mention before we, we move to the next slide, um, here's my email address. There's a couple ways that you can help. You can ask your family, friends, and colleagues to advocate. You can take two minutes to send an email to your senators through the NFED web tool. We have that available um, on our webpage. Um, you can also email me if you'd like a link sent to you. And then we also have a private Facebook group called the Ensuring Lasting Smiles Act Advocates um, private group on Facebook. And you can go in there to find any updates on ELSA. So our voices are stronger together and um, we'd thank you for any support you have or if you would be willing to advocate for ELSA. Thank you so much, Becky and Mary. Um, I actually have a question with um, genetic testing being so readily available now and much more accessible. What are the barriers to diagnosing this condition? You know, I, I would just like to comment and, and actually apologize to Shannon and Aaron that I, I forgot to mention that AEC syndrome is often uh, misdiagnosed as, uh, as uh, epidermal lysis bullosa. So, you know, in answer to Jen's comment is that it just has to do with awareness. I mean, this group of conditions is rare. And even though there are some very characteristic clinical features, you know, it takes, it takes somebody who's, who knows about this. So thanks to everybody who's attending today. And don't you think that uh, providers can go a, a long time with not ever seeing a patient. And so it's very hard to uh, identify and uh, really know the, the different syndromes. And some of the more mild syndromes, the symptoms can be subtle. And so doctors and nurses, they may not really question so much. Yeah, I think it's just familiarity. And, you know, again, for, for those of us who... Uh, put the training into being a pediatric dermatologist. And even if you have, pediatric dermatology is getting to be a big field when there's a lot to know, especially about the rare conditions that we may only see, you know, once if ever in our career. So it really has to do with recognition. But the wonderful thing is having organizations like the NFED that, you know, once once the inkling is there and the differential is formulated correctly, you know, then there's a place to reach out for um, management recommendations. Elaine, I had a quick question for you. What made you volunteer with the National Foundation for Ectodermal Dysplasias, and would you encourage other researchers and providers to also volunteer their time for um, the NFED or another patient advocacy organization? You know what, Becky, that is also a great question. And it was so long ago, and I apologize, Mary, I said 30 years, but you know, like time goes so fast, 40 years, 40 years, unbelievable. Um, so then I probably have been, you know, participating, I'd still say it's been about 25 years, you know, because Nan Esterly preceded me for about 10. And Nan really asked me to get involved, you know, I think she was kind of ready to, uh, ready to step back. And, um, uh, you know, it was one of one of the my career changing um, 
opportunities to participate. I feel incredibly privileged to have been, you know, a small part of the organization. But and so I would really encourage other people who are interested. And I, I also have been um, uh, involved in other patient support and research support organizations. And I got to tell you, the NFED is is uh, my favorite. It's it's just run in such a way that has been. Um, I don't think it's an accident that, you know, that it's been so effective in promoting patient care and, and research, you just, just because the way the organization is run. And Mary Kay Richter, who's the, the founding mother of the NFED, uh, I think she always thought that, you know, there was an angel on her shoulder, and I, I believe her. <laughs> well, I, be I believe her too, Elaine. And I, I will just uh, go on to say, you know, we really can't do it without you. I mean, we need your expertise to help our families learn how to treat these very uh, rare conditions and develop materials. And, you know, the, the joy of seeing families at family conference, I know it has to be rewarding for the, our physicians and our experts, but for our families to be, have that expertise at their fingertips, you can't imagine the difference it makes in their lives when they can get answers that nobody else can give them. So uh, we are so grateful for our uh, professionals that volunteer so much time uh, to help our, our mission. And the NFED is really unique in knowing how to utilize the expertise of um, their volunteer um, clinicians. It, you know, other organizations that I've been involved with really don't have that magic touch. But for anybody who's interested, it is a win-win. You know, you, you, you certainly can offer, you know, some insight uh, from, you know, our uh, dermatology perspective. But, you know, what you get from it is, um, you know, experiences that, um, you know, are so unique and, you know, you can't get them anywhere else. It's, it's been a, a real honor and a privilege. We do have one question. Um, it is, is it common for patients with ectodermal dysplasia to need an ophthalmology consultation? We certainly do have ophthalmologists that uh, are on our um, um, scientific advisory committee who've been, uh, you know, incredibly um, knowledgeable about, yeah, the dry eye situation, you know, eyelash problems, um, and a whole variety of other, you know, with ankylobluffron, a whole variety of other ocular-related conditions that um, it's, it, is a, it is, again, a win-win having, you know, pediatric ophthalmology expertise in general, but putting that unique experience to work to consider the unique challenges for the ectodermal dysplasias. And then the other um, uh, specialists for, uh, for the attendees that, you know, we have now a really growing group of um, um, multi-specialists who are participating, ENT, um, ortho, um, uh, ophthalmology, uh, dermatology, OBGYN, uh, help me out, Mary. <laughs> There's so many now. It's just been a, a wealth of information and different perspectives, general pediatrics. Genetics, genetic counselors. Right, of course, yeah. dental. Yeah, dental. They, you know, both pediatric and prosthodontist. And I will also add that I think it's incredibly really important for these patients to see an ophthalmologist early on, because my understanding is, you know, dry eyes can kind of creep up on you. And if it's not managed in the beginning, you can have some pretty significant complications from that. So thank you for that question. It's a really good one. We have a um, question. 
can I add on to that? I, I apologize. Um, Aaron's um, corneal issues started while she was in the NICU. So even at just weeks old, um, like the oxygen was drying out her eyes. And then it, uh, she ended up developing a corneal ulcer, which needed uh, tarsorophies and an amniotic membrane graft. So um, like Mary said, early intervention is best. And then we have a question for Aaron. Um, is there anything that you want doctors or providers or researchers to know about ectodermal dysplasias in your journey with ectodermal dysplasias? If you could say one thing about having ectodermal dysplasia to a doctor, what would it be? Well, that it hurts a lot. So it still hurts even though it looks healed? It still, it still is uncomfortable sometimes? Um, yeah, sometimes. Um, I have one question for Mary. If there is a researcher or provider on today who says, you know, geez, I'd really love to help the ectodermal dysplasias community, but I just don't know where to start. Uh, what can they do and who would they reach out to to volunteer their time? I would love to hear from them. Mary at nfed.org or call our office 618-566-2020. We would love to have your help. Everything from um, summarizing clinical recommendations to reviewing grants to attending the family conference and providing expertise. There's a lot of, a lot of opportunity for clinicians to participate. And then um, also I wanted to ask Shannon, do you have anything else that you wanted to add at all um, in regards to how um, important researchers are to the ectodermal dysplasias community um, or what you would like to see out of the um, re research community in terms of even um, Aaron's um, syndrome or just the whole ectodermal dysplasias umbrella family? Um, so the research portion is, uh, is very important to me. Um, I, for future, and I mean, I wish there was um, more money and knowledge put into it or awareness uh, put into it prior. Um, so Aaron didn't have to go through um, what she went through uh, with this, severeness of the erosions particularly but um you know moving forward um i think that uh research is extremely important for uh for future children obviously so they don't have to experience some of those um traumatic and negative experiences that she had to thank you shannon and then we also have oh sorry can i just mention one thing i i really neglected to mention you know probably the most exciting research that i've heard about in my entire career and that's the work of Holmes schneider and now a multi-center international trial that is um doing groundbreaking work in in uh, giving a molecule that has been was was uh, developed 20 years ago, probably, Mary, that's a ectodysplasia analog. But uh, after after going through trials in mouse models, uh, knockout mouse models, and then in, uh, the, in the dog model, uh, now it's going into launching into human trials, although there were single case um, trials where ectodysplasia was actually given to babies r immediately after birth. And now starting uh, in utero to correct the defect of hypohydratic ectodermal dysplasia. And then as I briefly mentioned, and some very exciting work looking at wound healing for AEC syndrome in a, in a molecularly directed way. Thank you, Elaine. We have um, another question. 
Is it not peculiar, peculiar that sebaceous hyperplasia is common when ectodermal derived structures are normally reduced in HED patients? Absolutely, and I did mention that. And you know, these these uh, people who have uh, HED, men in particular, who tend to have a little bit more prominent sebaceous hyperplasia, I think, than females, but they don't really seem to get bad acne. They just have this sebaceous hyperplasia, and all I can think about it is that it must be sort of a, a you know, a reciprocal, you know, reactive problem. You know, these patients also have very thick cerumen and uh, very thick uh, nasal secretions. And maybe that just has to do with aberrant or, you know, diminished, um, you know, uh, water secretion. I don't really understand that. There's so much that we don't know about and so much room for um, doing investigation about, about these problems and, you know, how to best address them. I just want to also... Um... Thanks, Elaine, for bringing up that, that really exciting research, the X-linked HED clinical trials. Uh, the first site, site opened in St. Louis at Washington University uh, about a month or two ago, and there's plans to open uh, a site on the West Coast and the East Coast. But anybody who has any ability to help us get the word out, that's going to be the big problem is letting uh, clinicians and patients potential patients know about this research because it's going to be a tragedy if, you know, a baby goes untreated that perhaps could have been treated. And the early results or even not so early results of the therapy, the clinical trials that uh, we are learning that sweat glands can function normally, they develop more teeth. So it's, it's pretty incredible, uh, this in utero treatment. So thanks for bringing that up, Elaine. No, I just wanted to come on and say thank you so much to the um, NFED and to Dr. Siegfried and to Shannon and Aaron for this wealth of information. It's always really impactful when we can put patient advocacy organizations directly in front of our researchers, and I know how much they appreciate it. Um, and I am just so, so happy that you were all so willing to do this. So thank you very much. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. And we hope we'll hear from some of the participants as to how they can help the NFED community. Thank you all. Have a good night. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone. Thank you so much for watching. If you have questions about the National Foundation for Ectodermal Dysplasias, feel free to reach out to either Mary or Becky. You can also learn more at nfed.org. You can find more educational programming on Petra's website at www.pedraresearch forward slash education.